Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 399th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, brought to you today by ICD University. And joining me this morning as my co-host is the very, very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD Incorporated, and good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. We continue our reporting on the big changes taking place in the coding world as mm-hmm. we begin a new decade. Of course, you know, Gloria Ann Bryant launched this series here last Tuesday. And today we'll be joined by Jenna Evans, who is the president and board chair for AHIMA. Yeah, we're delighted that Jenna could join us this morning. In light of those coding changes, Jenna's going to report on her agenda for AHIMA this year. Excellent timing. Indeed it is. And speaking of change, Susan Gatehouse is standing by to report on a major change taking place right now. It's the testing phase for the new Medicare program called Appropriate Use Criteria. Yes, and Lehman Willis, who usually reports on CDI for Talk 10 Tuesday and ICD-10 Monitor, offers tips for coders who need to improve their job performance. And speaking of job performance, Holly Louie has a Talk 10 Tuesday coding report. And, spoiler alert, the news is not good when it comes to coding accuracy. And you have a talkback segment this morning. What are you going to be talking about? I'm going to give you a few tips from a presentation on HCCs I'm giving in the spring. Very good. We have much news to report. We'll begin this morning with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by the American Medical Association, inviting you to purchase its newest publication, Risk Adjustment Documentation and Coding, Second Edition. It's available now at the ICD University Bookstore. Here now is Tim Powell. Thanks, Chuck. And whether or not you get paid on your Medicare deductibles and coinsurance depends on location, 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 just like in real estate. Whether the patient or the secondary payer pays a Medicare patient deductible or coinsurance amount is heavily driven by what state, county, and city they're located in. Location's not the only driver, but we're going to talk about location first, that it's the biggest driver. First, people in different states have a different belief around paying financial obligations. Collectors call this the propensity to pay. According to cost report data from latest filed Medicare cost reports, the states with the lowest Medicare hospital inpatient bad debts claimed as a ratio of inpatient Medicare deductibles was Maryland, which is which is which stands at only 2.9% were claimed as bad debts. The state with the highest ratio of Medicare hospital inpatient bad debts claimed as a ratio of deductibles and core insurance was North Carolina, where a whopping 31.72% of Medicare inpatient deductibles and coinsurance were claimed as bad debts. This means that providers in Maryland get paid almost all of their Medicare deductibles and coinsurance, while in North Carolina they get less than 70% of these amounts. While hospitals can claim bad debt reimbursement on their cost reports, most providers go unpaid for their bad debts. What state, what state a provider is in is also important for another reason. Many Medicare patients are also covered by Medicaid. These patients are commonly called dual eligible. You may think that the number of Medicare patients also covered by Medicare, Medicaid is relatively low. Actually, the percentage on a national basis based on the latest Kaiser study is over 20%. The state that a facility is located in determines the amount of payment Medicaid would pay on claims that were billed for these dual eligible patients. Each state has its own Medicaid plan, and whether Medicaid pays a Medicare deductible or coinsurance, sometimes called cost sharing, 
depends on how much Medicaid would pay on that claim if Medicaid had been billed as the primary payer of the claim in the first place. Medicaid plans in almost all cases restrict payment to the Medicaid payment for the service less what Medicare has already paid. Since Medicare usually pays more than Medicaid, in most cases, Medicaid will not pay Medicare deductibles and coinsurance amounts at all. This makes sense because if Medicaid rates are higher, then Medicaid pays more of the Medicare deductible and coinsurance amounts as the Medicaid rate for individual claims often exceeds the Medicare payment rate. So what can providers do? Counseling of patients about deductibles and coinsurance amounts upfront is the most important thing in making sure that you get your payments for your Medicare deductibles and coinsurance. And with that, back to you, Chuck. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor NASTA correspondent. This is Tuesday. It's January the 21st, and you're listening to the 399th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Population health management is the way of the future, and its methodology is hierarchical conditions categories, HCCs. HCCs drive appropriate reimbursement, and they are utilized in certain quality metrics. Since HCCs can be captured in the office or hospital, inpatient or outpatient, it is crucial that all coders and clinical documentation integrity specialists be familiar with this complex model. And as clinical documentation integrity initiatives around the HCC model are becoming more prevalent, Healthcare facilities must be able to support clinical documentation integrity efforts in the age of risk adjustment. During a webcast on January 29th, Dr. Erica Reamer will introduce you to the concepts and conditions of the complex HCC model. To register, view the upcoming webcast tab in today's broadcast. Save $30 when you enter the coupon code TUESDAY. Here now with the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report is Holly Louie. Good morning, Holly. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Erica and everyone. You know, I've been interested in the Central Learning Coding Contest for the four years it's been running now. The less than wonderful coding accuracy when ICD-10 was launched was no surprise to anyone. It was such a massive change. But we're four years out and talking about 11, and overall accuracy is just 40.4%, and that's worse than last year. We're going the wrong direction. This year, they focused on outpatient specifically due to the shifting patients into that place of service and the new reimbursement methodologies. Interestingly, 81% of the coders in this contest are certified by AHIMA and or APC. 82% of the coders have more than five years of experience. And yet, primary diagnosis accuracy was 60.5% and secondary only 386 these theoretically are black belt coders. They should be the best of the best. And to me, it's way beyond just this coding contest. It raises serious questions. Are production benchmarks so high in real life that bad habits have developed of not really reading the records? I've been told that that is true by many, that they go straight to the diagnosis and done. Are coders allowed to question physicians when documentation is poor? Many say absolutely not. They can report to their supervisor, but under no circumstances should they bother the physician. And I've also heard from many people that physicians are not totally receptive to coders talking to them. They're the doctor. They know what they did. Leave me alone. How about EHRs? Could they be to blame? One huge system takeaway, excuse me, took away coding tools for the outpatient coders and said to use the EHR coding. Well, I'm going to be honest and crude. It's crap. It's terrible coding. 
And so if that's what they're used to relying upon, they're really not used to going to the conventions. In another hospital system, the lookup tables are not the coding conventions, nor do they include any of the rules that go with them for primary and secondary diagnoses, excludes one or excludes two. Is this as part of the story where the CERT report for the year has the number two errors being outpatient coding? Is this finding a major contributor to the massive increase in medical record requests? Coding doesn't occur in a volume a vacuum. I think this is a huge opportunity to figure out the rest of the question and the rest of the story and why the best and the brightest are only mediocre. That's what I have today. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Holly. That's Holly Louie. Holly is past president of the Healthcare Business Management Association and is a compliance officer at PMI. Susan Gatehouse joins us now to report on a major change that's taking place right now. It's the testing phase for the new Medicare program. It's called Appropriate Use Criteria. And good morning, Susan. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining today's broadcast. And a special welcome to Jenna Evans. We're excited about what 2020 has in store for HEMA. So with that being said, let's move into the appropriate use criteria. With the gift of the new year, coding and reimbursement in the outpatient arena was not forgotten. As of January 2020, the testing period for appropriate use criteria officially began. Make note this change is not mandatory until January 2021, but outpatient organizations are encouraged to take advantage of a year-long ability to test the systems because it is a systemic impact on the workflow with the implementation of AUCs or appropriate use criteria. So what is appropriate use criteria? Physician and other healthcare professionals who order an advanced diagnostic imaging test, such as your MRIs, your PET scans, any nuclear med um, test, your x-rays, ultrasounds, fluoroscopies are left out of the mix. Um, so they're really your high-cost tests must consult using a qualified decision support mechanism. So otherwise, otherwise referred to as a CDSM. So in my mind, I think of IT. And there are 20, I think an average of 20 systems that have been approved by Medicare and they're on the Medicare website. So it's technology. Um, professionals who provide these tests will be required to register the order to be paid for the service. So they're registering the order in the CDSM. Appropriate use criteria links to specific clinical conditions. Evidence-based criteria for imaging is meant to assist clinicians in selecting the imaging study that is most likely to improve healthcare outcomes. AUCs apply to physician offices, hospital outpatient departments, including the ED. However, there are some caveats with the ED and ambulatory surgery centers, independent diagnostic testing facilities, as well as outpatient settings um, that may be outside what we just spoke of. So there is not an any indication there's going to be a delay in the implementation of this as of January 2021. Um, this has been in place or has been talked about since 2016, so take advantage of the year. The appropriate use criteria for advanced diagnostic testing imaging requires integration into a patient's clinical workflow. So the CDSMs are electronic 
portals a clinician uses during a patient's workup and typically integrates into the EHR. Essentially, the underlying goal of appropriate use criteria is to ensure the effective use of technology to guide referring physicians to the appropriate imaging for a patient. If a provider does not follow uh, appropriate use criteria requirements and is discovered, it has been stated that a physician that is not using this criteria could potentially be required to go through a pre-authorization process. In order to sufficiently prepare for the implementation of appropriate use criteria, the involvement of multiple departments will be required, such as IT, radiology, physicians, revenue integrity, HIM, and these are just to name a few. As healthcare has integrated information into single source form, there continues to be disparate systems. When evaluating the implementation and workflow, consider newly acquired organizations that may not be on the same platform. Also consider miscellaneous processes or systems that are integral to the part, uh, part of the ordering process. Many times orders continue to be scanned. Consider how these should be integrated into the system. If organizations are undergoing the implementation of an EHR, for the first time, there is an opportunity for a hardship exemption. Many organizations have made the decision to roll out one modality at a time in order to work out kinks in the system. So with that said, time has a tendency to move much quicker than one can imagine. Don't get caught off guard by delaying preparation for this change. One consequence of this change that cannot be overstated is the impact it will have on the method in which high-cost imaging is ordered and approved. So there could be a significant financial impact if this system is not working well for you as of January 1, 2020. So take advantage of the year. Back to you, Erica. Thank you, Susan. That was Susan Gatehouse. Susan is founder and CEO of Axia Solutions. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And thank you, Susan, very much. You can read Susan's report on this developing story in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor News. Layman Willis usually reports on CDI for tucked into an ICD-10 monitor, offers tips for coders who need to improve their job performance. Good morning, Layman. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Chuck. Thank you very much. Welcome, everyone. I wanted to just touch on a couple of things. Um, I've written an article, and it has to do with uh, getting beyond the mediocrity of just being a ordinary coder. Um, there are a lot of people out there in the uh, coding arena who are putting in their resume, turning in their resume to different organizations, looking for work from home opportunities, um, you know, applying for positions, whether it be in a physician setting, a hospital setting, as an auditor or a CDI um, personnel. And, you know, one of the things that I find uh, a lot of times uh, after I have put the person through a test, uh, had them do an assessment, uh, checked their references and looked over their resume and had a conversation with them is that they're incapable of fulfilling uh, the duties that most coders would be able to do. Uh, they, they can't get beyond some of the basics. The basics to me have to do with being very, very familiar with your uh, annual coding guidelines, whether those be from the ICD-10, CM, or PCS guidelines, or the outpatient CPT-4 guidelines from the uh, CPT manual, 
Uh, knowing the coding clinic criteria for various specialties that you have coded in the past or that you're going to be coding in the present or the future. And then also uh, being familiar with uh, CPT assistant uh, guidelines. Uh, also, you know, some of the state-specific rules, regulations, laws concerning various policies and procedures related to coding uh, and billing. Uh, many times the people who are applying for these positions uh, I find are not very detail-oriented, but that's one of the skills that you really need to have as a coder. Uh, they lack proper communication uh, skills, and uh, they're unable to really um, do some basic problem-solving when it comes to being a coder. You know, and that's one of the things that you can't uh, quite test on when you're interviewing people. And so, you know, it's one of the things I uh, encourage people to become uh, more tech savvy. Um, you know, really, um, you know, learning a few things about some of the technology that you're going to be working with. Uh, if you say that you have experience with various electronical, electronic medical records or electronic health record. Uh, systems, then, you know, you should be able to um, be able to navigate those very well. Uh, also, having healthcare literacy, um, you know, uh, being able to read uh, and um, choose between uh, various types of information within your record, um, you know, knowing some of the uh, criteria that are going to set you apart for uh, looking at diagnosis coding or procedure coding. That's one of the things that is truly going to set you apart in your career. And and then some of the basics uh, that, you know, we think about along the lines of uh, management and getting along with team members and also managers is being able to take direction and following through on what you've been asked to do. Um, you know, you may know a lot, uh, you may know a little, but what you do need to do is, is provide, um, you know, good listening, uh, questioning, and research, and providing that communication back to others within your organization. And those things are commonly referred to by uh, many as uh, soft skills, but I really, uh, you know, think that they're, they should be common in the workplace and they should be so commonplace um, that, you know, we're lo really looking for more when we are interviewing people and asking them to perform uh, these job duties. Thanks, Lehman. That was Lehman Willis. Lehman is Director of Coding for Velocity Healthcare Collaborative. Chuck? Thank you, Lehman. And be sure to read Lehman's excellent article on how coders can improve their job performance. It's there in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor News. We continue our reporting this morning on the upheaval in healthcare, particularly the coding world in 2020. It's a new landscape of challenges for coders and him professionals alike, and that is why we asked our next guest to participate in part two of our series. So please join me in welcoming to Talk to Tuesday, the 2020 president and board chair for Ahima, Jenna Evans. Jenna is here this morning to report on her agenda for Ahima, and keep in mind, will you please, that Ahima represents more than 100,000 him professionals throughout the world. Here now is the aforementioned Jenna Evans, and good morning, Jenna. Welcome to Talk 10 Tuesday. Good morning. Thank you, Chuck, for the warm welcome. First, a little bit about what has led me to my role as a HEMA president. My volunteerism leadership began many years ago with the Georgia Health Information Management Association, where I served in many roles, including president twice. From there, I began volunteering for AHIMA, serving on many committees as member and chair, as well as serving on the AHIMA Foundation Board. I served as a director on the AHIMA board from 2014 to 2016, and during that time realized I wanted to run for AHIMA board president chair-elect. 
Yes, it is a commitment, one that takes time, energy, and work, but one that I would not trade for anything. I am honored to be president chair this year. So let me tell you a little bit about 2020 and AHIMA's agenda. In 2019, we developed a new strategic plan supported by key strategic objectives. Our mission, empowering people to impact health, and our vision, a world where trusted information transforms health and healthcare by connecting people, systems, and ideas. These have served as our guiding forces as we set our agenda for 2020, and I'm excited to begin our work. Our three strategic outcomes include advancing and advocating for the creation and use of trusted information across the evolving health continuum, shape the health information profession by growing the influence and competitiveness of health information skill sets, and drive the strategic transformation and renewed growth as a great partner and place to work. Two areas of focus for AHIMA will be continuing to lead the industry dialogue about the importance of finding a patient matching solution and supporting the creation of standardized social risk codes derived from social determinants of health data. We are also doing a lot of work to strengthen our brand recognition and partnerships internationally. We are co-organizing eHealth Week with the Croatian Ministry of Health this spring and building partnerships and training in the Middle East. We continue to look for new opportunities to forge partnerships domestically as well. For example, we've embedded a HEMA design templates in the Artifact Health app, designed to make it easier for clinicians to complete documentation and answer queries. These templates continue to be adopted by healthcare organizations. AHIMA also continues to create excellent publications, educational products, and is planning more great changes to AHIMA's Health Data and Information Conference. I'm excited this year it will be in my hometown of Atlanta, Georgia. We've had great attendee engagement for speakers and new additions, including the pitch competition in 2019, and we believe 2020 will be even better. The goal with our strategy with the alliances and with our content is to elevate AHIMA's members. We have an opportunity to tell the story of the skills and value HIM professionals are bringing to the transformation of healthcare. In doing so, we are creating opportunities for them. As an association, we are creating value for our members. 2020 brings a huge opportunity for our HEMA, our members, partners, and future audiences to join together to move our profession forward be the disruptor, demand a seat at the table, and lead others to transform health and health care. Thank you so much for me allowing for allowing me to be a part of your broadcast today. Erica? Thanks, Jenna. That was Jenna Evans. Jenna is the 2020 AHIMA President and Board Chair. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And Jenna, thank you very much for being with us this morning. Now is the time for a very popular segment here at Talk 10 Tuesday. It's called Talk Back, and it features our own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, it's all yours. Thanks, Chuck. In March, I make my annual pilgrimage to Columbus, Ohio, to speak at OHIMA, and my topic is entitled, The HCC Model Risk Adjustment Isn't Just for Inpatients. You can catch it early if you join me next week on my webinar for ICD University on Wednesday. In preparation, I scrutinized the 2020 CMS Hierarchical Condition Categories HCC model. I thought I would share some general pointers with our audience. Interestingly, many of the basic concepts are just as important in the inpatient DRG risk adjustment model. The first point is that the number of conditions a patient has is now going to factor into the risk adjustment score. The RAS will now include a baseline score for demographics, 
additional risk adjustment factors for each specific condition after the hierarchy is applied when applicable. The adjustment for interactions between certain conditions, like simultaneously having heart failure and chronic kidney disease. And now there's going to be an additional fudge factor if the patient has four or more HCC conditions. A pervasive issue noted in the HCC model is the use of history of, a key coding clinical disconnect. To coders, this phrase means old, resolved, no longer active, and it often leads to a Z code, which is not usually risk-adjusting. The clinician may really mean to indicate a chronic or controlled condition, which is part of the patient's medical history. This may mean the difference between an HCC condition, like chronic pulmonary embolism, with an RAF of 0.383, versus a non-HCC condition like Z86.711, personal history of pulmonary embolism. Does history of lung cancer mean that the patient has lung cancer that is currently being treated or is not treatable for a risk adjustment of 1.024? Or does it mean Z85.118, personal history of other malignant neoplasm of bronchus and lung, which provides no risk adjustment? The next concept is to designate conditions as being in remission. These are conditions which might fall off the provider's radar if they no longer constitute active medical problems. Conditions like acute leukemia, severe substance use disorder, otherwise known as dependence, or depression, specified as in remission, are still housed in the respective HCCs and reap the associated risk adjustment. Speaking of which, if your provider documents depression without specificity of recurrent or in remission and without detailing the severity of the depression, the code assigned is F32.9, major depressive disorder, single episode, unspecified. This is neither a CC inpatient nor is it included in HCC59 for the RAF of 0.309. Linkage is critical to landing in the right HCC. If your provider documents right ankle ulcer on today's visit and atherosclerosis two visits ago, the dots can't be connected to yield atherosclerosis of the extremity with ulceration, even if the coder would compliantly be permitted to do so as per the ICD-10-CM guideline with convention, had the diagnoses appeared conjointly in the same encounter. This could mean the difference between an RAF of 1.488 and 0.515. Medical conditions this year predict expenditures for the following year in the prospective CMS HCC model, and the slate is wiped clean on January 1st. An acute injury or illness counts only for the next year, but chronic conditions remain part of the patient's risk adjustment for as long as the conditions persist. Therefore, the problem list must be curated and edited to reflect accurate capture of the patient's conditions. If the problem resolves, it should be removed or it should be relegated to a personal history of condition. If it persists, the condition may become a chronic condition, like chronic hepatitis or pancreatitis. An initial encounter may morph into a subsequent or sequela encounter and may land in a different HCC, like in head injuries. Your best bet is to spend some quality time scouring the HCC list like I did. You just may recognize conditions which will make a difference to your clinician, their quality metrics, and their bottom line. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Erica, very much. We've asked our panelists to stick around for uh, the opportunity to answer some of your questions. Erica, let's take a look. Steve has a question, as does Thompson. Erica? Okay. Holly, um, as a non-medical coder, Steve is asking a question. Um, how is the accuracy of coding determined? What's the gold standard for the right answer? 
let me first caveat that, that it does have some uh, bearing on whether you're an inpatient or an outpatient because the coding is different. However, the bottom line, Steve, to make it the easiest is the CPT and or modifiers need to be the most precise and most accurate based on the documentation. And the supporting diagnosis codes need to be the most specific that are available by the documentation and include all of the parameters, the etiology, the causation of fraction and their injury, for example, to capture a complete clinical picture. Um, in addition, you have to follow the um, rules for the, the use of those codes. Do they exclude something? Do you code first? Do you code second? So I think the rules are the most important point. You need to live in them. Thank you very much, Holly. And then, uh, Susan, I think this one is for you. When appropriate use criteria are used appropriately, will certain payers still expect tests to be pre-authorized by the provider with the chance of the pre-authorization denial? Great question. I think that one of the important things to remember in terms of appropriate use criteria, appropriate use criteria and pre-authorization are not the same thing. So one doesn't replace the other. So first let me mention, I, I did talk about pre-authorization in terms of if physicians are not using the appropriate use criteria system, then they may be penalized, for lack of a better word, in having to have certain um, services that fall under the, the Nuke Med, PET scans, the high-cost imaging, they may require pre-authorization. If appropriately used, um, in terms of the order is, is based on evidence-based criteria, to ensure that the test that the physician is ordered it has been approved or, or looked at really to provide the best outcome for the patient. So is this the best test for the patient to diagnose um, a patient's condition? Again, going back to those tests that I mentioned. So as far as certain payers outside of Medicare, I can't speak to that specifically, but with Medicare, if used appropriately, we do not, um, from what I have read and researched, I do not anticipate that there would be a pre-authorization process as it relates to appropriate use criteria, unless, again, it's something that's not followed by physicians. One other uh, point to mention that could create some confusion with the OPPS system for 2020, there are certain outpatient procedures that are now requiring pre-authorization. I believe there are five, and those are listed in the um, outpatient prospective payment system final rule. One being, I, I believe, rhinoplasty, blepharoplasty. I think there are three more. Those will require pre-authorization. So uh, appropriate use criteria and pre-authorization are not the same thing. So one doesn't replace the other. Uh, thank you sure. so much, Susan, for answering that question. Chuck, I guess that's a, a wrap. Thanks. That's right. That is going to be a wrap for our 399th edition. Talk to Tuesday. I want to thank our guests today, Susan Gatehouse, Holly Louie, Tim Powell, Layman Willis, and our special guest, Jenna Evans, and, of course, our co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporter for ICD-10 Monitor and Talk to Tuesday. Thank you very much for being with us. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.